Well, good evening. How's everybody doing tonight? Good, good. Well, as Ross mentioned, my name is Mike, and uh, I have known the Ryman's since I was about eight years old, and uh, I actually remember Barb was, uh, I believe it was my third or fourth grade Sunday school teacher at one point, and uh, <laughs> and uh, like Ross mentioned, he has in many ways been a spiritual father to me. Uh, as he mentioned, on top of my mom passing away, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Uh, so when, a lot of times when I needed counsel, I needed a prayer, I was broken just by life trials, he was always there for me to kind of run and cry in his arms, as I have done actually on a couple of occasions. <laughs> um, but as you mentioned, I uh, came to the fellowship in 2007, and I was serving in the high school ministry. Uh, but Ross gave me the opportunity through the church to go to Calvary Chapel Bible College. And I spent three semesters in Southern California. And by the grace of God, they opened up a campus in Jerusalem where I spent my fourth and final semester. And that's actually where I met Sarah. So I didn't meet her in Southern California. I met her in the Holy Land. And uh, <laughs> that's where our story began. And uh, yeah, God's been so good to me. He has spoiled me. I am truly a spoiled child of God. Uh, tonight, I want to share, as Ross mentioned, a little bit about what the Lord is doing in my heart and what it's going to be leading to in this next chapter of life. But let's pray, and we'll dive into the scriptures. So, Lord, we just want to come before you. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is like a seed being planted deep in our hearts. So we pray it would come to bear so much fruit in our hearts and lives. Lord, give us a heart for the lost. Give us a vision for world evangelism. And Lord, I thank you that this church is concerned about evangelism. And Lord, continue to plant those seeds and give us boldness to share the faith. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So it's been said that the most important words someone will ever speak are the last words of their life. <clears throat> the last words often reveal a lot about their conduct of life. It reveals a lot about their current joys and regrets. It, uh, it reveals a lot about uh, how they're viewing death and ultimately eternity. Uh, Elvis Presley, his last words, unfortunately, were this, I hope I haven't bored you. Martin Luther, the one who nailed the 95 Thesis to the Catholic Church doors. After waking up from great chest pain in the middle of the night, Martin Luther cried multiple times, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His do the doctor rushed into the room and said, do you stand firm on Christ and the doctrine you've preached? Luther answered yes and died a few hours later. John Wesley, he was the uh, starter of the Methodist movement. This is a random fact, by the way, but he was the 15th of 19 children in the family. Poor mama. <laughs> he was a brilliant evangelist. He was a brilliant missionary. And he did amazing things for the Lord. And his last words were this, the best of all is God is with us. And then he passed. One of my favorites is actually from the scriptures. It's Stephen the martyr there in the book of Acts chapter seven. Uh, many of you know the story, he was ready to be stoned. Saul of Tarsus, who we now know as Paul the apostle, was there consenting to his death. And right before the stones were being hurled at him, he cried this out as loud as he could, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And he died. 
In the same way that we view the words of these men as so important, tonight we're not going to look at the last words of any mere man, any mere sinner like you and me. Tonight we're going to look at the last words of Jesus Christ after he's risen from the dead, but right before he ascends to heaven. Turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Just to give a little context... Jesus has obviously just died for the sins of the world. And the Jewish rabbis, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish culture knew that a Messiah was supposed to come. But they had favored the passages of scripture that talked about the Messiah ruling and reigning as a king. And so when Jesus came on the scene a little more humble than they expected... They were hoping that he was going to conquer the Roman occupation and set the Jewish people free. And so when Jesus had died, there was much disappointment in the Jewish culture. The disciples were also very discouraged. Imagine that they had invested everything in the Lord Jesus Christ, many of them losing careers, many of them losing friends and family because they followed this Jewish leader. Guys, Jesus appears to be the investment that has gone belly up. But as we begin here in Matthew, Matthew's gonna reveal to us that Jesus is now the investment that is gonna return the greatest dividends in world history. As we read about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how the disciples are gonna be a part of the greatest movement the world has ever seen. Since Jesus is alive, we need to look at a few reasons why we can trust that Jesus truly is alive. The resurrection is very important because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes that if Christ never had rose from the dead, your faith is futile, your preaching is in vain, and you are still in your sins. And so I know there's apologetics where you can study the defense of creation versus evolution and end time prophecy, but if there is one thing you want to be very, very knowledgeable about, It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is what your Christian faith hinges on. If Jesus did rise from the dead, we have hope. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we have no hope. And in the book of Acts, Luke being the author, who, by the way, has been verified by many Roman historians, Flavius Josephus among the many, and Luke records this in the book of Acts, chapter one, verse three. He says, after Jesus is suffering, He showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So tonight I want to look at two things. Number one, I want to give you guys confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And number two, I want to give you boldness to fulfill the Great Commission. The first reason why we can trust that Jesus truly did rise from the dead is number one, the increased number of believers in Jerusalem. Just consider this, that if Jesus was still in the grave, it would have been impossible for Jesus to have gained followers after his passing away. Why? Because if you read through the Gospels and and Jesus proclaimed to the Pharisees, he said, hey, you destroy this temple, and guess what? In three days, it's coming right back up. You can't keep me down. You can kill me. I'm going to get back up. I'm going to rise from the dead. And he made it very clear, and there's Old Testament prophecy, Psalm 16, verse 11, that his soul would not be abandoned to the grave. 
So let's look at the increased number of believers in Jerusalem. It's interesting that in the book of Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus has an interesting order of how he wants the gospel to go into all the world. It says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in, notice this, in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Why is it important that Jesus notes that they were supposed to go to Jerusalem first? It's because people could verify the preaching of the resurrection if it was true or not. What do you mean? Well, the Jewish leaders in that day and age could have called the Romans in and said, hey, let's parade the body of Jesus around because these nut Christians are coming in and saying that Jesus has risen from the dead. And what they could have done is they could have taken Jesus' body down the old, uh, the old uh, city of Jerusalem and Ben Yehuda Street and paraded his body and said, guys, don't believe this movement. It is a lie. So why does Jesus tell the disciples to go to Jerusalem? Because the resurrection could be verified. One of my favorite parts about having studied in the Holy Land and, and specifically in Jerusalem is as an evangelist myself, Wherever I go, I have the tendency to share the gospel. And when I would be in Jerusalem, if it was a Palestinian, if it was a, a Jew, if it was a tourist just wandering the streets, I would have opportunities to share the faith. And what was awesome, the luxury I had there that I, did, that I don't have in America, in America when sharing the faith, is that if they did not believe the message of the gospel or believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would say, hey, if you're free, if you got five minutes, let's go walk down to the tomb and verify that it is empty. And I did that on many occasions, people not finding it very funny, of course. Uh, I thought it was hilarious because of my confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. But guys, the disciples had that same luxury. So when they're preaching the gospel and they're saying, Jesus Christ is risen, repent of your sins and believe in him. No, he didn't. No, he didn't rise, or we don't need to trust in Jesus. Well, let's go verify the tomb. Why did he send them to Jerusalem? It was verifiable from Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And Luke continues to detail the growth there of the early church, and he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it was the first post-resurrection sermon given by Peter that 3,000 people believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you, are you supposed to tell me that 3,000 people believed a message that could be verified as false? I think not. Acts chapter four, verse four says, the number of believers was up to 5,000. And then Luke just gets to the point in Acts chapter six where he throws his hands up and he says, it's not even worth counting anymore. Because he says this, it says, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. So not only is there an extreme popularity of Jesus Christ, the message of the resurrection in the early church, but uh, the disciples, the second proof that we have for the resurrection is that the disciples went from little boys to tough men. What, it, what do you mean? Well, you guys know Peter, Peter the apostle. In Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verses 66 through 60, 72, excuse me, Peter is seen as having denied the Lord three times. And on top of denying the Lord three times, he also denies the Lord to a little junior high girl. To me, that's pretty sissy. 
The rest of the disciples there in John chapter 20, verse 19, the first half of the verse, it says, on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. They were hiding in fear. The disciples were timid, they were scared and in hiding. The question is, what event could turn timid, scared, and hiding Christians into, into evangelists that are as bold as a lion? There had to be some kind of event that happened in their life that would say, hey, you know what? I was scared of this, uh, of this faith. I was scared of the consequences of following Jesus, and now something has happened in my life that it's worth preaching and it's worth risking my life? Well, the answer obviously is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 20, verse 19, the second half of that verse, notice this, it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. What changed these disciples to be bold? Jesus came, Jesus is risen, he is alive, folks. And the reason why the disciples are able to go out with boldness and with power is because they had seen the risen Lord. And as many of you know, uh, the 11 disciples minus John were all martyred for their faith. Mark, Mark went to Egypt to share the gospel and he was dragged through the streets of Alexandria, Egypt until he died. Luke was hung in Greece on an olive tree Matthew was killed with an object that was similar to that of an axe. Peter was crucified upside down. One of the other disciples, I'm blanking, I think it was Bartholomew, was filleted alive with knives. And again, the world wants to tell you that they all went through that for a lie. Again, I think not. Many die for what they believe is true. A lot of people say, well, your disciples died. Well, Muhammad's disciples die. They go through martyrdom. Well, many die for what they believe is true, and we all know that's a true fact, but nobody dies for something they know to be a lie, amen? Nobody's gonna die for something that they know is a lie. A lie. The disciples were at the point in history where they could verify the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's just say for an example, for a modern day picture, if I were to have, or someone else, let's say, because I would never do this, of course, but if someone else started a religion and it was based on the resurrection of Michael Jackson and people were going out proclaiming, Michael Jackson is risen from the dead, you play his music and whatever. And then if the government were to come and crack down and start arresting these Michael Jackson followers, and then not only arresting, but taking their freedoms and then torturing them, there comes to a point that a lie is not worth living for. And guys, all 11 disciples were utterly tortured for their faith. Why? Because they had seen the risen Lord. Since we understand that Jesus is alive, we need to consider the Great Commission in these next few verses because these are the last words of Jesus Christ, God's heart pouring out to his disciples. And as we all know, God always saves the best for last. So not only should we have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we should also have boldness for the Great Commission. 
Where does that start? Well, it starts with evangelism. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15 says this, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Guys, I can tell you right now that if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all sent, if it's to our neighbor next door, our coworker at, at the workplace, our family at the Thanksgiving table. Guys, we are all called to share the faith. <clears throat> there are, a lot of times there are obstacles that we run into, our timidity, our unsure of how people are gonna respond to the gospel. A lot of us think, well, what if someone's not ready to hear the gospel, or what if I don't say the right thing, or what if I stumble on my words, or what if I don't know answers to people's tough questions? Guys, if we never share our faith, now I understand not all of you are gifted evangelists, but we are all called to share the faith. If we never share our faith for whatever reason it might be, it's probably because deep down within there's a lack of faith in the power of God's word and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter one verse 18 says this, but what does it matter if I share the faith? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false or true motives, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Guys, God isn't so much concerned with the method of evangelism. A lot of times we get together and we think, how are we gonna evangelize the world and save Santa Rosa? A lot of times God's heart is just that the gospel would go forth. Anything from handing out tracts, preaching from a box, door-to-door uh, -door ministry, whatever it might be. I remember I was at my cousin's house, and as guys, we like to watch football. And so we're watching football. It was probably the 49ers when they weren't very good. And there was a guy uh, in, behind the field goal, so the extra point was kicked, and there was a sign that said John 3, 16. And my cousin, who doesn't know the Lord, looked at me and said, what is that, a phone number? <laughs> oh. But even though it was just a guy holding a sign in the stands that says John 3, 16, it gave me an opportunity to say, oh no, John 3, 16 is this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And I'm sure there were many others that were struck by conversation when they saw that in the stands. It was uh, Tim Tebow that did the uh, John 3.16 in, I think it was one of the bowl games when he was in college, and he had John 3.16, and apparently it got something like, is it six million or eight million Google hits? God doesn't care how we get the word out. Jesus just wants you to have the heart for lost souls and to speak the truth into people's lives. When I was at Bible college, it was an interesting season of my life because I, I was working uh, 30 hours a week and doing school full time. And I remember just being a little, not even flustered, but just kind of frustrated that I wasn't part of some kind of youth ministry. I didn't really have the time. And so what I did is the Lord just put it on my heart to try something I had never done before. I had done... Um, I had handed out tracts, you know, struck up conversation with people about the Lord. 
But in this season of my life, I thought, well, I'm gonna try something new, and I tried door-to-door evangelism. It was very interesting, (laughs) to say the least. Um, I had many amazing conversations. I was able to share the gospel with a Muslim who had never heard of the gospel message. And so I was able to introduce to him that, you know, you're not saved based on your works and how much you impress Allah, but you are saved by the grace of God alone. He didn't necessarily get saved, but man, a seed was planted in that man's heart. I heard a statistic, I don't know if it's true, uh, but I heard a statistic that someone who becomes a Christian on average has to hear the gospel at least seven times. If they just pick the number seven because that's cool, I don't know. But either way, it sounds good. The point being is that, guys, we have the opportunity to be number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, number six, and possibly even that seventh person who leads someone to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the body, and there are people in this community that we all run into on different occasions. And, you know, if, if one of you is sharing the faith, I might run into them at the credit union, and you might run into them at the grocery store. But the idea is that no matter how we do it, it's the fact that we must be sharing the gospel. I was also, when I was doing door-to-door evangelism, there were these kids playing in the neighborhood, and they got a ball stuck up on the roof. And so I got to play the hero, and I was actually able to retrieve the balls for them. And when, they, when the balls were falling off the roof, they were all excited and and, uh, and I'll never forget, I thought, wow, this is an opportunity. All these kids love me now. <laughs> so I thought, hey, I might as well use it as an opportunity for the gospel. And granted, these kids were 10 years old, so I don't know if any of them took to heart what I said, but there was actually one kid that I was able to say the sinner's prayer with. Did he really believe? Did he really know what I was uh, introducing to him? I don't know, only God knows. But it was a seed that was planted, and a kid confessed Jesus as Lord. It was amazing. Uh, Last story about door-to-door evangelism. I knocked on this guy's door, and when you don't have someone with you, and you're not wearing all white with a bike on the lawn, they look at you, and they're wondering, what is this guy doing on my steps? (laughs) So I, I, I just, you know, gave my presentation, and... And the guy said, why don't you come in? And I was a little surprised, because it's very rare that you actually get invited into somebody's house. And so I got invited into his house, and we ended up chatting for about an hour and a half, just about the gospel and church and and all that the Lord is doing. And this guy ended up telling me, he said, you know, I, um, I was raised in a Christian home. And since I've been married, I have walked away from the Lord. My wife and I both don't attend church anymore. But before I left the house, he said, you know, with you coming to my house and the passion that I see coming from what you have to say, I am really encouraged by your faith. And I am encouraged to now challenge my faith and maybe reconsider the Lord. He didn't necessarily make a proclamation of repentance necessarily. But guys, when we go forth and share the gospel, you don't know if you're reaching the kid who is uh, raised in a Christian home. You don't know if you're reaching uh, someone that's a murderer. You, you just don't know. But guys, if, if they're a backslidden Christian or if they're what we would think of as a horrible sinner, everybody needs to hear the good news that Jesus Christ died for their sins, rose from the dead, and wants to offer them a newness of life. Guys, all TV shows and hobbies and activities that you love in this life 
will not pay, cannot pale in comparison to the work of evangelism when you enter heaven's gates. You're never, when you get to heaven, you're never gonna think, man, I missed season three of American Idol. You know, you're not gonna think, man, I missed the Rosie O'Donnell show. You're not gonna think those things when you get to heaven because, guys, all that matters in this life is your investment in eternity. Guys, the investment that the world looks at and they say, oh, belly up, Christian faith, oh, narrow-minded. God says, no, you're winning souls. You're investing in the kingdom. Oh, you're never gonna have regrets when you invest in evangelism. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30 says this. It says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Let's take a, let's take a poll in here. How many of you want to be considered wise in the eyes of the Lord? I would say that's 100 out of 100. I want to be considered wise in the eyes of the Lord. And if you guys want to be considered wise, wisdom is this. Reach out to those who don't know the truth. Reach out to those who are unnecessarily suffering under the burden of sin because they don't know that there is freedom in Christ. Reach out, it's wisdom. But evangelism is not the command of the Great Commission. Evangelism is the stepping stone to discipleship. If evangelism is catching the fish, Jesus said, you are fishers of men. Discipleship is reeling that believer in and discipling them and working, them and working on them and cleaning them up so that, as Romans 8.29 says, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And I, I went really long with that intro, but I wanted to read... <laughs> well, was, that wasn't the... <laughs> Let me rephrase that. I was planning on reading the passage a little bit earlier and got carried away. I'm sorry. But let's read Matthew 28, verses 16 through 28. Ross is never inviting me back to the pulpit. <laughs> it says this, Matthew 28, 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice there in verse 11, this is just something that kind of stuck out to me. Now the 11 disciples. I just want to encourage those of you who either are in ministry or are praying about starting an evangelistic discipleship type ministry. Jesus picked 12. And by the time he has died, he has been buried and he's risen from the grave. Notice there's 11. When you serve in any kind of ministry, if it's a pastoral ministry, if it's an evangelistic ministry, any kind of ministry, you're gonna always have people that will appear to come alongside. And then as times get tough, they will eventually bail. And I just wanna encourage you that if that has happened to any of you here in this fellowship, don't let that embitter you. I've met a lot of people that are bitter because of other Christians. Guys, Jesus can sympathize with that weakness and he can feel your pain. 
because he was betrayed by someone from the inner circle of his disciples. Moving forward, it says, and, they, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When Jesus said that after having just risen from the dead, I don't think anybody would have questioned his authority. They had crucified him, put him in the grave, and if it couldn't be even more impossible than rising from the dead, notice they roll a stone that is multiple tons in front of the stone, and then on top of that, they put a few United States Green Berets in front of that door. Okay, maybe they were Roman soldiers. But the scene is impossible, and there is no possible way that Jesus could have come back from the dead, because even if he had risen from the dead, he still had to move a mega stone, and then he also had to deal with the Roman soldiers, which, of course, are this, the passage before says that they were in so much fear that they were like dead men. So that's how he got by. But all that to say is no one questioned Jesus' authority when he had risen from the dead. Jesus has authority over heaven, Jesus has authority over the angels, Satan, and the demons. He has authority over the, the nations of the world, the governments, and most importantly, over your heart and your life. Remember, he's not just your savior, he is your Lord. And guys, there's two aspects to discipleship I wanna look at. You'll notice there in uh, verse 19, it says, go therefore make disciples of all nations. And he defines discipleship by saying that we are to go into all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. So there's two aspects to discipleship. One, baptism, which as Jim mentioned, we're going to have a baptism on Sunday. If you have not been baptized, you need to be baptized. It's not an issue of salvation, it's an issue of obedience to the one you love so much. And, uh, and then of course, teaching obedience to Christ is the second aspect of discipleship. Baptism, Romans chapter six, verse four says this, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk and newness of life. Baptism, guys, is identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Ross puts you down into the water, and of course, depending on how much of a sinner you are, he may hold you down a little bit longer. <laughs> but as you go down and you're going under the water, you're identifying with Christ's death as he was buried. And what you're doing is that, that old nature, the sinful nature that was always self-seeking and always about the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, that is being put into the grave, and as you raise up in baptism, you're raising up as a new creation in Christ, for the old man is past and the new has come. I like to think of baptism kind of like a wedding. When I married Sarah, I didn't, and if you went to a court, I'm not dissing that by any means. But because I love Sarah personally so much, and she's just really pretty, so I wanted everyone to see her with me in front of a lot of people. <laughs> and she is beautiful, but, but what was my response? My response was to have a wedding and to invite as many people as possible. 
because I was proud that I was marrying Sarah. And we ended up having two to 300 people at our wedding, which by the way, was only her people. Just shows how popular she is. Because uh, it was in Minnesota and most of the Californians couldn't make it. But because I love her, I wanted to do it in front of as many people as possible. And that's the idea with baptism. It's, it's kind of like a, a wedding ceremony. Do you technically have to have a ceremony? You could, yes, you can sign the documents, but it's so much better to celebrate with all your friends and family. And that's what baptism is. It's, it's gathering the church family, perhaps your non-Christian family and coworkers and friends, and saying, you know what? I just want to identify in front of all these people that I am submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And once you've identified yourself with Christ, it is time to teach obedience to Christ. That is the second point to discipleship. Obedience to Christ. There is different ways in which we, re we rate success in the Christian faith. There's the American model, which says if your church is over 1,000 people, then you have a successful church. If you have ministries in here and there and everywhere, you have a successful ministry. Well, Jesus' model was just a hair different. In fact, it was a lot different. Jesus' form of discipleship was to take a group of small believers, he picked 12, and Jesus invested everything he had. He invested all his teaching, he invested time, energy, and his example of who he would be to the world and how we would follow in his footsteps. I love 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. In fact, if you have a pen, you should write this down. This is a great discipleship scripture. It says, Paul is writing these words. He says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Of course, yes, there's an aspect of, I'm gonna teach you something, I'm gonna teach you Christian principles and teach you evangelism. Speaking of discipleship, this wasn't in my notes at all, but I just have to say, I am blessed by the discipleship that happens in this church. I think of, you know, when I showed up to the church in, in uh, 2007, we, I don't even know if we had one leader to run all of the youth ministries. And under the leadership of the church and the vision that Ross has for this church, he has been able to disciple men that can now rise up and take hold of the ministries that Ross doesn't have time for because he's serving you guys. And now we have a college pastor who's taken the college kids and he's discipling them. And we have Adam running the high school ministry and Brian running the junior high ministry and Josh taking care of the kids. Guys, there's a lot of discipleship. I love uh, Jim's ministry of evangelism. I am honestly not sure if I've ever heard of a church that consistently goes into the streets and preaches the gospel. Guys, that is amazing. And I've seen Jim take people who are very timid, they're very shy, and before you know it, they're on a box proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. There's a lot of discipleship happening here. Guys, just as a little food for thought, Jesus entrusted the gospel to 11 people. Think about that. He entrusted, he didn't tell, I mean, he did minister to a lot of people, but he discipled 11. And so he's entrusting that through 11 people, the whole world is going to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Discipleship taken seriously has a lot of power. 
And those 11 men, as history tells us, turned the world upside, or right side up for the gospel's sake. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 says, And these things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. And that's what Ross has done. That's what Jim has done through the evangelism ministry. And the idea of good discipleship, let's say, for example, if I was running a ministry, the idea of good discipleship is that if I were to take off, if I were to be a missionary somewhere else, or if something happened and I unfortunately couldn't run that ministry, if I've done a good job in discipling somebody, someone could take my spot and continue the ministry as though I was never a part of it. That is the idea of good discipleship, and that is what the 11 disciples did with Jesus' work. Jesus, remember, Jesus said, hey, you're gonna do greater things than I. How could we do greater things than provide salvation to the ends of the earth. And so that is the work that God is desiring us to do. The final promise for those of you who say, you know what, I really need to consider taking the Great Commission seriously. Jesus ends on this note there in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. He says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, this is the promise he gives to those who take the Great Commission seriously. And behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Let's pray. So Lord, we just thank you for your word, Lord. I, I just am so blown away that you would call us out to be your own and you would call us to be your messengers. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, fill all of our hearts to look out to how we can reach the lost and disciple new believers and welcome them into the church. Lord, continue to bless the ministry at Calvary Chapel of the Rock. And Lord, use us all as we go on our way. In Jesus' precious name, amen.